I hope you're doing well this morning. If you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to take it out or turn it on or whatever you do and uh, open it to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Here in just a few moments, we're going to read the whole chapter together as a church. 1 Samuel chapter 8. While you're turning there, let me tell you a quick story. In the late 1800s, there's a story about a boy, a boy that came from a very, very poor family. Uh, His family could never afford much, but one day in his town, while he was out walking into town, he noticed a poster that was announcing that soon the circus would be coming to town. And of course, like any young boy, he was excited. He wanted to be a part of it. And so he asked his dad when he got home that day if he could go to the circus. And of course, him and his, his dad and his mom kind of looked at each other, realizing that they had, uh, didn't have the money for something like that. But his dad didn't have the heart to tell him no, and he said, Son, if you will do your chores every day this week until the circus comes to town, I'll make sure that you have the money to go. So sure enough, the boy did what any boy would do, right? He did his chores without being asked. He did them better than he had ever done them before, and he made sure that they were completed on time and just like his parents would want them completed. And so the day came for the circus to come to town, and the boy went to his dad, and he asked his dad for the money, and the dad pulled out a $1 bill and gave it to his son. His son had never handled that amount of money in his life, and his parents had rarely handled that amount of money in their lives. But they gave it to their son to be able to go to the circus. And so he walked down to town, and the circus was coming into town, and it was, there was a parade. The circus was coming through a parade into town, and, and the boy was just amazed at all of the animals and the performers and the acrobats, and he just couldn't believe what he was seeing. And then about the end of the parade, the clown walked by, and the boy took the dollar out of his pocket, and he handed it to the clown, and he walked back home, never having seen the circus, thinking that what he had seen was the circus. When you get to a passage like 1 Samuel chapter 8, that's kind of what's happening is that they, the people here are settling for something that is at best a cheap substitute for the real thing. It's at best, in the best case scenario, just a foreshadowing of what's to come. But the people think that this is the best that God could possibly offer them. We'll read about why and we'll talk about that, but... I don't want us to be a church that settles for the thing that's supposed to point us to the real thing. I don't want to be a dad who settles for something that's at best a cheap substitute or a foreshadowing of the real king to come. There's an interesting line in the 1994 movie, The Shawshank Redemption. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's an interesting line where Morgan Freeman's character says to Andy, who's played by Tim Robbins, he says this line, hope is a dangerous thing. 
Of course, Morgan Freeman is talking to Andy in the movie about how it's, it's dangerous for a prisoner that's been given a life sentence to, to nurture hope because there is no hope of ever getting out when you've been sentenced to life. And so he says to Andy, it's a dangerous thing to hope. I think it's equally dangerous to place your hope in something that cannot hold the hope that you're placing in it. Or let me put it this way. It's dangerous to place your hope in someone that was never designed to hold the kind of hope that you're placing in them. That's what 1 Samuel is talking to us about. So I want us to read it together and then look at kind of the four basic scenes of the chapter, make some observations about that. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. Follow along with me. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judge over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in the ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that, have, that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the waves of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. 1 Samuel chapter 8 is about God's people choosing to place their hope 
in a cheap substitute for the real king that had already demonstrated his faithfulness, provision, and protection to them. 1 Samuel chapter 8 is about a people a long time ago, but they're not all that unlike us today, who sometimes, or maybe even oftentimes, settle for a king that we were never meant to settle for. They were putting their hope in the same way that we sometimes put our hope in something or someone that's never meant to hold that kind of hope. So I want us to look back through this chapter. I want you to see how this unfolded. And particularly for those of us that are dads, I want us to look and I want us to ask this question. Where is our hope being placed? Who is our king? Maybe you're not a dad, or maybe your kids aren't at home anymore. Who is it that the kids in our church as they look at the adults, as they look at the men and women in our church, who is it that they would say, I know who their king is. Their king is Jesus. It's very evident. Keep that in mind as we look through this. Part 1, verses 1 through 5. Israel asks for a king, right? Israel wants a king. Well, it starts with this. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel, right? He's kind of like trying them out so that people can see them, right? Because they're supposed to inherit dad's business, right? But very quickly, what do the people realize? The kids are nothing like their dad. They do not walk in his ways. That's kind of a fancy Bible way of saying they were kind of a waste of food, right? They, they, didn't, they weren't that great. They didn't submit to the Lord. They didn't love the Lord, their God, with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They didn't serve the people with God's will in mind, the way that Samuel did. And the people realized it. So if you stopped here, you'd go, amen, people. They saw it. They could point out the difference between Samuel and his sons. The people are on kind of a good track record at this point, right? They're being able to see that these people, these sons of Samuel, they're not what they want to judge them, right? Then you get to verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. This is Samuel's hometown. And they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. If you stopped there again, you'd be like, Yes, great, you guys got it. You picked up on the fact that these guys are losers. But look at the next phrase. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. All right. Have you ever had this, exper this experience? Particularly if you're a parent here. Have you ever had this experience? Well, let me just tell you my experience, then I'll ask you if, if you've had this experience, right? So this morning, as we're driving in, we drive in, we park the car. Avery gets out first. Avery is our son. He gets out of the car. And uh, he, he's not looking where he's going. And right about the time that he's uh, darting out from behind the front of our car, one of our very carefully driving elders, I won't tell you his name, but his initials 
start with Rich Holt, was driving into the parking lot. And Avery starts running towards the car. And so Danielle, I didn't see because I'm clueless, Danielle, being the great mom that she is, has this moment where she gently and lovingly says, Stop! What are you doing? Right? We weren't really thinking about how we could be kind and loving and gentle. At the moment, we were just thinking about, like, we don't want him to get hit by the car. You ever had that moment as a parent? Where you're just kind of instinctual, don't do that. Don't go there. Maybe, maybe it wasn't a moment, maybe it was a season where you saw your child drifting away from something that was right or drifting away from Christ. Maybe you didn't yell it out loud, but in your heart you were thinking, no, 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 don't do that. When you read verse 4 and verse 5, that's what should be going on in your heart. No, no, don't you remember the God that brought you out of Egypt? Don't you remember the God that's taking you, to the, taking you to the promised land? Don't you remember the God that said he would never leave you and never forsake you? Don't you remember the God that promised to be your king, that promised to protect you and provide for you? Don't you remember and now you want a king just like all the other nations? What are you thinking? Samuel thought that same thing. Verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And he prayed to the Lord. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they haven't rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Don't we often do this? Don't we often know God's promises? And yet we still choose to place our hope in those that have given us promises that they could never possibly fulfill. Don't we sometimes place our hope in something far less than the hope that 1 Peter says is undefilable, never fading, in something that is defilable. And as Chris read this morning from Psalm 37, will surely fade. We do the same thing, do we not? And I wonder sometimes if God looks at us and He says, like Danielle from the car this morning, no, 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 what are you doing? Why are you chasing the cheap substitute?" Well, God responds with a warning in verse, starting in verse 6 and reading down. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. Verse 8, According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me. This is their habit. right? God proves His faithfulness. He provides for them. They betray Him. God proves His faithfulness. God provides for them. They 
abandon him. I mean, this is just the pattern over and over and over again. Sometimes I kind of chuckle inside when we kind of lionize and we heroize the the characters of the Bible, because if you really read the Bible clearly, there's not a lot of heroes. There's really a lot of morons and a few kind of heroes, and then there's Jesus. That's really it. Verse 9, now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them. So God says to Samuel, I want you to warn them what's coming. If they choose a king, just like all the other nations, here's what's going to happen. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And then in verses 11 through 18, there is a word that is interesting. I don't know if you caught it as we read through it earlier, but the word occurs six times. In the text, here's the word, take. Take. Let's read it one more time, right? Verse 11. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground, to reap his harvest, to make his implements of war and and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work, and he will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. Six times in seven verses, God says, all right, I'll let you have what you want. You want the cheap substitute? I'll give you the cheap substitute. But here's what you're going to get. You're going to get a taker. You're going to get someone that takes, 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 takes from you. Everything that he can take, he'll take. As if God is whispering over and over again, what you want and what you're asking for is a taker, and what you've had is a giver. You've had someone that's given themselves, themselves for you. I've gave myself to you. I've gave you my law as a grace to you. I've given you all of the parameters for flourishing as a people. I am bringing about, I am going to give you a Messiah that will rescue you from your sins once and for all. But instead of receiving what I want to give you, you'd rather serve a taker. That's the warning. And if you were to read through The rest of the Old Testament, what you would see is exactly what Samuel warned the people would happen, happened. If you want to write down some scriptures and go read these later, I I would encourage you to do so. 1 Samuel 14, 52. 2 Samuel 15, verses 1 and 2. 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 5 through 16. 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 10 through 14. And 1 Kings 12, verses 1 through 16. 
what you see is exactly what Samuel said would happen, happened. They got a taker. In fact, they got a long line of takers with the occasional man that served God, but more often than not, someone that didn't walk in God's ways at all. They got takers. I don't know about you, but sometimes I tend to forget how much of a giver I serve in Jesus. And when I do, I start settling for the takers that the world offers. Right? And the world offers some pretty good-looking takers. I mean, the, the, the king that they're going to get, he's a good-looking dude. Saul, he's big, he's tall, he's muscular. I mean, he looks a lot like me. And, you know, I mean, they... What's so funny? I don't understand. But here's the deal. He's a taker. He took them to places they never expected to go, and not good places. And David, even being a man after own heart, God's own heart, took them to places at times that they never intended to go as a people. Solomon the same. We've been reading through the kings. Oh, my lands. There's just some awful, awful stuff. They traded a giver, a giving God, for a taker. So what are the kings? Or maybe the functional saviors, if you'd like to put it like that that vie for our hearts. Let me just share a few. Uh, one is passion. You can serve king passion. What I mean by is like lust. You can serve passion. Whatever I see, I want, I, I take, I get. But you know what passion will do if you serve it long enough? It'll take relationships with other people away. It may even take relationships with your spouse or your kids away. If it doesn't take it completely away, it'll at least break them, damage them. You can serve king possessions, but if you serve king possessions long enough, It'll take all of your time. It'll take all of your money. Right? Did you know that the average American is in well over $22,000 of debt, not including car and mortgage? Why? Because we are serving possessions. Rather than allow them to serve us, to bless others, we're serving them. And we've served them so long that it stole our time, and it stole all of our capacity to bless others. It stole so many things from us that God intends for our joy. Men especially, but ladies also, you can serve king position at work where you're constantly chasing after and serving the next promotion. But if you do it long enough, 
it'll take all kinds of things that you don't want it to take. It'll take all kinds of moments that you were hoping to spend with your kids. It'll take all kinds of date nights that you were hoping to take with your spouse. Yeah, you may have more money and you may have a great title on your business card, but it will have taken far more than it would have given. But perhaps the, uh, the king that Americans serve the most is King Ming. Or I'm the king. Let me just ask you a question. If you've been the king over your life, how did it work? Did it work great? I mean, you, are you like an awesome king over your own life? Or queen? Here's what I've found, and maybe you're different, but here's what I've found. I don't make a very good king over my life. There's, a, there's an interesting uh, commercial on TV. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't. I think it's like a rental car commercial where the guy's walking through the airport, and he says, lots of people like to contro- call me a control freak. I just like to refer to myself as a control enthusiast. Right? And some of us were that. We're control enthusiasts. We want to be king over our own life. Once in a while, life throws you such a curveball that you realize you're not king. And you're not in control. And if you have put your stock in being in control, it will damage and maybe destroy you if you've convinced yourself that you can be king over your own life. Because life will remind you that you cannot be. You're not a sufficient king. So, all substitute kings, and I've just named a few, they tend to take far more than they give. Interestingly enough, though, the world has figured out how to package them as giving far more than they take. Right? So I watch the denim commercial, the jeans commercial on TV, and I get the sense that I'm going to look awesome, which is going to take a lot more than a pair of jeans for me, but I'm going to look awesome and I'm going to be more popular and my life's going to be happier. And then when I get there, what I find out is they're just going to take 80 bucks. And I'm still going to look like a scrawny, still waiting to go through puberty kid. Right? They took far more than they gave. Part 3, verse 19 and 20, the people want their human king anyways. Look at verse 19, but the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. He gives them this warning, he tells them that this king, these kings are just going to take, take, take from them. But they, they didn't obey his voice, they didn't heed his warning. Look what they say, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us. Go out before us and fight our battles. The implication here is that the people were afraid and they did not trust God. It's interesting what they're afraid of, though. They're afraid of the very thing that God had already proven He could do for them. Right? What happens? He delivers them from the greatest army on the planet in Egypt through miraculously parting the Red Sea, drowning all the Egyptian soldiers. They get 
into the wilderness. And then after 40 years in the wilderness, God has led them into the promised land. And they get into the promised land. What did the spies, before they got in the promised land, say? These people are huge. There's so many of them. We'll never be able to take that land. And what does God do? God does exactly what he said. He would give them the land. And he did that. He fought on their behalf. Every time they took God into battle, what happened? The people that they were fighting against got wiped out. Every time they left God on the sidelines, what happened? They got wiped out. So they should have known. But yet, they're still operating from this fear and lack of trust that what God did, God can still do. So help me for just a second. Think back over your life. Where has God disappointed you or not done what He promised He would do in your life? Nowhere. He's always kept His promises. That doesn't mean your life is easy. God never promised that. That doesn't mean your life is without trial or persecution or suffering. God never promised that. But you'll never find a time when God was not advocating on your behalf, when God was not faithful to His promises. There's a verse in Romans chapter 5 that says this, but God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even in the moments and seasons of your life when you were not following Jesus, Jesus was still following you if you're his child. He was still faithful. He was still providing for you. He was still caring for you. He was still present, acting and praying on your behalf. But yet, sometimes we still choose our own kings anyways. Well, why do we do this? Why do we choose these other kings or these substitute saviors, as I like to call them? I don't know all your answers, but I wrote down a few that made sense to me. Sometimes we just want to be excited by something that the world's offered us. It looks exciting. It gets marketed so well. Everybody else is doing it. Or it makes us feel valuable. Maybe that other person or maybe that different title on our nameplate at work makes us feel valuable and important. Makes us feel like we really are something. Or maybe it just makes us feel happy. Maybe we don't like to admit it too much because we're in church, but sometimes other kings sin doing what we want. It just makes us feel happy. Those are all desires that God has given us that were never intended to be fulfilled by anything or anyone less than King Jesus. He's the only one that can fulfill all those desires for joy, for value. Only King Jesus can fulfill all those. The rest are just making empty and temporary promises. 
So, what does God do? Verse 21 and 22, and we'll conclude with this. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. Can you imagine what that conversation sounded like to the Lord? He repeated them to the ears of the Lord as if Samuel is whispering in the ear of God. Almost with shame, saying, they don't want you. They, they want the cheap substitute. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. And if you read on in the next chapter, God gives them a king. There are moments throughout the, New, or the Old Testament where the kings are really good guys and they're doing great things. And they're following the Lord. And there will be times and seasons when even substitute kings in your life will bring a bit of happiness or make you feel a bit of value or bring you a moment of what you would say is joy. But it won't last. The only one that has the ability to stay, to last, to be faithful forever to deliver on His promises is King Jesus. So why is King Jesus better than hoping in anything else? That's what we're getting at, right? Not unlike these people, we, we choose other kings besides Jesus too. Why, why is hoping in King Jesus? Why is placing our faith in King Jesus better than trusting in all the others? Well, unlike the others who always take far more than they could give, what did King Jesus say? I came to give my life as a ransom. What did King Jesus do for you? He gave himself for you. He gave everything for you. He gave everything so that this world could be rescued, brought back under His authority, and could be ruled by the all-loving, all-powerful, all-good King. Jesus is the only one that gives infinitely more than He takes. All the other substitute kings, they take infinitely more than they give. Jesus gave Himself. He left the right hand of the Father. And He came to our world, the world that He had created. He entered into our life, our suffering. He lived the life that we were supposed to have lived in perfect obedience to the Father, in perfect relationship with the Father. He lived that life, the one that we were intended to live, in right relationship with God. And then He laid down His life. He gave His life. No one took His life. He gave His life on the cross so that you could be reconciled to God. He gave His life so that you could gain God. 
so that you could gain back the relationship with God that God always wanted. And God continues to give and pour Himself out for you and for us here at Green Pines and us as a people, as Christians. And one day our giving God will return. And wouldn't it be a shame if when we return, we found ourselves like that little boy that handed the dollar to the clown and thought, oh my lands. I had no idea that the circus hadn't even started yet. I've been serving a substitute savior. A cheap substitute of a king. Wouldn't that be a shame? So here's my question. What is your hope in? Is your hope in King Jesus? Or some other king? The answer is probably a mixed bag, right? Here's what I would encourage you, though. As my brothers and sisters in Christ, choose Jesus. He's the only one that gave himself for you. He'll never let you down. He'll always provide. He'll always be faithful and present. He'll never forsake you or abandon you. How do we know? Because he already demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If he was willing to give his only son, can you imagine what lengths he will not go to to give us anything else that he knows is good for us? So dad... The best thing that you can give your kids this Father's Day is a dad that's serving King Jesus. That's the best thing. The best thing that you can give to your kids this next year is a dad who their kids can clearly see is serving King Jesus. Above King promotion, above King me, above King money, above King anything else. A dad that's serving King Jesus. Dad, did you know that as the father figure in your kids' lives, you will either make it harder for them to understand God's love and provision, or you'll make it easier by the way that you love them and serve King Jesus in front of them. They may not choose King Jesus even if you're following King Jesus. That's the story in Samuel, right? But here's one thing you can take to the bank. It will be much more difficult for them to understand the love of our Heavenly Father and the provision, the good provision of our Heavenly Father if they've not experienced that with their earthly father. It's not impossible, but it will make it more difficult. And so you may say, gosh, maybe I'm, I'm not as good of a dad as I wish. Maybe there are, there's such a mixed bag, right? I'm, sometimes I'm serving King Jesus and other times I feel like I'm serving some other king that's a cheap substitute. And it's never too late to start. This is the great thing about our king is that when we seek him again, when we repent and turn to him, what does the Bible tell us? That he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we will confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us. He'll welcome us back. Think of the father and the prodigal son. 
looking out over the horizon, looking for his son that had gone wayward, and then overjoyed when his son comes back. So maybe you've strayed or drifted away from King Jesus. Just turn back towards him. He will welcome you with open arms and begin to take you from where you are to where he wants you to be. Maybe you didn't have a great dad. Maybe you know kids that don't have great dads. Maybe you are a kid that's suffering and hurting because you don't have a great dad. There's a wonderful name for God in the Bible. Really, it's a descriptive phrase. It's like this. God is the father to the fatherless. So today, if you don't have a great dad, you didn't have a great dad, you don't have great feelings for your dad, your dad was not a great role model of serving King Jesus, here's what I want you to know. Your heavenly father loves you. And he would love to show you what a great dad does for his kids. He has already shown you that in King Jesus. And he would like to continue to unfold that in your life, if you would let him. So who will you serve? Will you ask for the king, just like all the other nations? Will you try to be your own king? Or will you place your faith and your trust in King Jesus? That's the question I hope you'll take home today. Why don't we pray, and then I want us to sing something that I think is just a great response to this kind of text, which is that Jesus paid it all. He gave it all for us. I want you to sing it like you believe it this Father's Day. So let's pray, and we'll stand and we'll sing, and we'll have an opportunity to respond to God.